This is the Leaside Lives podcast. Welcome along to episode number nine. I'm Jordan and my guest this time around is Stephen Barrett, who is a cycling trainer and performance scientist at AG2R Le Mondial, the World Tour cycling team based in France. Stephen is a native of Castle Lines and he's going to be talking about his role within AG2R Le Mondial and other roles he's held it um, within other sporting teams and organisations over the last number of years as well. So Stephen, welcome along and thanks for taking time out to speak to me on the podcast. Hope you are well. No, thanks very much, Jordan. It's uh, it's nice to be on. It's nice to, to hear a Cork accent as well for the first time in a, in a good few months for me. You know, I'm used to hearing French accents, so it's a, it's a, it's a pleasant change for my, for my daily my daily occurrence with the French guys. <laughs> good to hear. How are you managing with the language barrier? Because I know when you first moved to, to France, I mean, you didn't have French, uh, shall we say, but was that a kind of a struggle for you at the start? It, it was, Jordan. I mean, it was, I suppose, I've always come from the background of being involved in, in GAA and in Irish sport. And we, you, it doesn't even cross your mind having to deal with a, a different language. You know, you see some of the guys involved in your premiership football and rugby and they've got foreign nationals who come in and, and, and play the sport. For me, in a GAA context, it was never really an issue. And I suppose... It's funnily enough, it was one of, the, one of the things that actually drew me to the job with Age of War was having to very rapidly learn a, uh, learn a new language and, and learn a new way to communicate. And like, like you said there, is when I accepted the job almost 18 months ago. Now, I couldn't speak French. You know, I didn't do it for Leaving Cert. And uh, yeah, it's been a pretty steep learning curve. Incredibly enjoyable, incredibly re- rewarding, but uh yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting first few months in the in the job for sure. Glad to hear, and I'm sure the job opportunity actually came about while you were giving a presentation at the Tour de France. Is that right? That's that's correct. Yeah, it was. Um, so it was 2000. It was a 2008 uh, 2018 Tour de France. So I was working as a head head of performance with Aqua Blue Sport, um, which was a professional continental team run by uh, run by a corkman actually, Rick Delaney. And uh, I went to the Tour de France, and each year the Tour de France is preceded by a conference called a Science and Cycling Conference. And the idea for me going there was to just present some information, some data that I gathered in my first year with Aqua Blue, and. With Aqua Blue, we had, we had quite a, a small budget in comparison to other teams. And our first year, we ended up being reasonably successful. And the, I suppose the idea of the of the my talk was to give a deep dive into how we manage with such low and limited resources, and how we we kind of translate that into 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 kind of pretty you know pretty uh, good success for us. We kind of punched above away quite well. So I gave that presentation. I remember calling my wife actually afterwards and uh, like I'm not the biggest speaker in, in public. I, I kind of tend not to do much of it, but I remember calling her afterwards and being really happy with, with I just felt I got this really good response from, from the audience and the talk went down really well. And uh, yeah, maybe you know, a few days later, I, I got in one of the, the head of performance for AG Tour actually sent me a message on Twitter saying he really enjoyed my, my talk and would I be interested in maybe stepping up to the World Tour in 2019. And immediately I kind of turned it down because I was quite happy with Aka Blue. We had kind of plans to progress and to to move up in the sport. And and to be honest with you, 
of all the world tour cycling teams, you've got you've got you you know UK teams, um, European teams, I know Belgium, uh, Spanish, American, Australian, of all the teams that you could you could see. There's 22 teams. AG Tour probably would have been the last team I would have picked simply because it had this um, kind of label of being old school and being French and they only speak French and it, it didn't really cross my mind and uh, they ended up being, you know, obviously a few months later Aqua Blue folded and the guys got back in touch with me and they ended up being quite persuasive and, you know, we had to jump through a few hoops but in, in the end, yeah, I, I accepted a job offer and... Uh, yeah, it's been it's just been a year and a half now. We've been involved in the with the team, which has been, which has been, uh, yeah, it's been an awesome challenge for me. You know, it's been an awesome challenge from, from my time, you know, working in GA, working in a let's say a, a medium level cycling team like Aqua Blue to working you know with the top cyclists in the world. You know, Tour de France every year, Giro d'Italia, Vuelta Espana. It's a, it's it's a pretty cool circus to be involved in. It's really exciting, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. So clearly at that talk you gave at the 2018 Tour de France, they saw something in you that they really liked. What is your role now within the team at AG Tour? What does it entail and what areas are you focusing on, Stephen? So a lot of my, well, my, my predominant role is as a coach or as a trainer, as we call it in, in cycling. So I will coach, um, we've got a roster of uh, 28 riders. I will specifically coach eight of those guys. So... Um, I'll look after the day-to-day, you know, periodization and planning of, of what they do on a day-to-day basis of, of eight guys. I then oversee a lot of the product development, specifically when it comes to cycling, there's a big emphasis on equipment and aerodynamics. So I'll spend a lot of my time in wind tunnels, working with um, clothing manufacturers, work with a bike manufacturer, work with helmet manufacturers, trying to optimize all these and pieces of equipment to try and optimize performance because I suppose it's not too dissimilar to Formula One where cycling has kind of changed in the last few years where there's a massive investment of resources have gone into um, increasing or improving equipment. So bikes have changed drastically, the wheels we use, the tires we use, you know, even even down to the, the chain lube we use on our, on our chains, they have changed drastically. So you're always trying to trying to extract small gains in all these different areas, and uh, that's where I would spend a lot of my my you know research and development. And that was one of the reasons why Agent War, I suppose, got in touch with me was that I have a I have a science background, but also because I'm an English speaker, I have I suppose access to more of the research and the data and, and I trust they wanted me to bring that into there, which is a predominantly or it's, it's a purely French speaking uh, business. And I suppose when you're just speak your know, French, you're quite limited in, in the amount of uh, information you actually, you actually have access to and, and especially trying to disseminate uh, research that's been done in English back into to French. So that's, that those that's my my predominant role. I've also taken over this year is the physical preparation, so the strength can, can conditioning, and that was kind of like a, an afterthought. In in that, in my first few months, they began to see I had a bit of a aptitude for you know, off the bike performance as well, and and that would come from from my roles working in GA as a as a strength and conditioning coach and, and different sports. And they began to see that they could utilize me in a way where we can actually use off-bike uh, training to improve performance, which, you know, we're in this midst of the coronavirus and 
all our French guys actually can't leave their homes. So we've implemented a, a pretty, uh, pretty robust strength and conditioning uh, program that those guys will follow. And that's quite novel within cycling. It may sound crazy, but it was strength and conditioning and, and actually trying to get yourself physically strong off the bike is something that's probably never been done. And most of the time, professional bike riders spend time on the bike and anything else is seen as uh, you know, something that they don't need to do or don't have to do. So that's kind of where I spend the majority of my time. I have the odd role as well in some races. I'll become, I'll be a director sportif. So director sportif is, is that you know, people may have seen it on, on, on TV. You're in the car, you're shouting at guys in the, in the race radio. So I've been slowly exposed to that in my first year i did a bit of it bit of it with aqua blue and my first year with uh with ag tour i was director sportif at royal london and i was assistant director in the tour de france and the, um, the giro which is which is just it's a mad mad learning curve you just it's such a chaotic environment it's quite it's quite a, a unique and and I, you you learn so much from it from it about yourself and I mean this year then the road the, my well my my pro, pro, was planned for me was to do a bit more in director sportif role um, as my French improved and and as I uh, became more comfortable in that role because it's quite different um, and yeah that's kind of that's kind of the majority of of what I do on a day to day basis so it's quite quite diverse yeah really hands on as well by the sounds of things and obviously. With AG Tour being a French team, the Tour de France is their their holy grail. I mean, Roman Bardet, who's the team's poster boy, he's finished on the podium a number of times now. Hopefully, we'll have a Tour de France this year. But would it? What would it mean to them if they were to have a rider to go and win it either this year or next year or the year after, Stephen? That's all that matters. It's uh, it's like you alluded to there. It's you know, we're a French team and uh, we have a French sponsor, and the Tour de France is the the pièce de résistance when it comes to comes to cycling and to have you know there's not been a french winner of the tour de france in for many many years many decades and, you know roman was second place um in 2016 i think he was and he was again on the podium in 2017 um so that that is what we're striving striving towards and striving for is is to have a french rider you know wear the the maillot jaune wear the yellow jersey on on the last day and you can see from you know, from our pre-season training camp in, in December, which we have in Spain, everything is always laid towards that. And, and, that, and, and that can be a double-edged sword in that you put all your eggs in one basket. And it's something that we've tried to diversify a little bit in, in the last two years since I've been there. And we've got some other guys like Oliver Nason, who's done very well in the classic races, Milan San Remo and Paris-Roubaix and Tour of Flanders. But it, 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 you can't hide the fact that the the most important thing from from the team is to have a winner of the Tour de France and that's kind of what matters so th- what comes with that is a lot of pressure I mean at the Tour de France last year it was um, one of the most intense environments I have ever been in now I've been in, in the dressing room at halftime in an all-out learning final and that's intense but uh, the, the sheer intention and the sheer nerves and everything that's riding on this one thing is is quite remarkable, and and it's an experience that uh, has has kind of stayed with me, and it's something that certainly has developed me as a as you know as a as a coach, as an educator, as a person in general. It's been massive. I've changed a lot in the last kind of twelve months uh, because of these different experiences I've had, and uh, yeah, it's it's an awesome opportunity to actually see what this means to these people, and and then you ju- you just you you what happens is you just you kind of buy into it. 
you know, I'm 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 a Cork I'm a Cork man, I'm a Corkonian, and but you know, you're in a French team in the Tour de France, you become French, and it's it's quite a it's quite an unusual thing, but you really just want the guys to perform and do the best they can, and it's uh, it's a quite it's an extremely emotive thing, but uh, that's awesome experience, really awesome experience. Going back to your time with Aqua Blue Sport uh, a couple of years ago, a, a team, an Irish pro cycling team with with its roots in Cork, uh, I spoke to you. While you were at Aqua Blue Sport as head of performance, and I think Connor Dunn as a cyclist, the work you did with him pretty much summed up your role within the team, didn't it? It uh, it did, and and funny funny you say that because a lot of what we did with Connor would have been an important part of that uh, presentation I gave the Tour de France in two thousand eighteen, which ultimately led me on to getting the job at Age to War. But for people who don't know, Connor Dunn is. Um, uh, firstly, he's an awesome person. I know it's a very cliche thing to say, but the guy is uh, the guy is an, is an awesome is an awesome guy. But he's six foot, he's six foot nine, so he's two hundred and one centimeters tall. He's about ninety two kilograms. So if you were to make a person who was perfectly not meant to be a cyclist, he would be it. He's too tall. He's too big. And he's too heavy. He doesn't you know deal with heat very well. He doesn't go up mountains very fast. He has a lot of wind resistance. He just doesn't fit the mold as a cyclist. And what you have with him is that you've got a guy who is incredibly um, motivated and incredibly, res- incredibly responsive to information. So when you give him information, he absorbs it and he applies it immediately. So with Connor, we, we, in our first year with Blue, we did uh, Vuelta España, which is, again, is a, is a three-week grand tour, 21 days. Um, in the height of the Spanish summer, so you know, averaging sometimes up plus 30, 34, 35 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. You had climbs, you had mountains, you had, you know, on most days between 2,000 to 4,000 meters of climbing, um, you know, 200 kilometer day stages, you know, six, six and a half hours, hours long. And when you look at those stages, particularly for the guys we were dealing with, it's not a for Connor. It was never about winning the, the Vuelta España, winning the stage. It was about, and this is not this is not to take away from his achievement, but it was about survival. It was about how he could get from day to day, and how he could be a good teammate and do his role within the race. And people often say, you know, they might ask Connor, "Well, did you win a stage or did you do this?" And it's, and and cycling is different. It's not about individuals winning or or doing something. It's about them being a very good teammate. And that maybe going back to the car getting. You know, beat ons for the other guys, and maybe you know, giving one of your teammates a gel or a bar. But what Connor did for a guy of that size and that weight, our biggest task was how could we feed him and how could we fuel him for three weeks? Because the energy expenditure that he would have, have um, done every day would he, be, he would have been averaging you know between four and a half to eight thousand calories expenditure just from cycling now that doesn't count the two to two and a half thousand you expend just normally by doing your you know just 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 doing your your day-to-day stuff so he was expending on average between eight to ten thousand calories per day and our job was trying to get that back into him if you didn't get that back into him there's a good chance by by day four day five he would just basically decompose probably um so me as the scientist and as a nutritionist we had a very uh scientific plan you have this many grams of carbs you have this many grams of protein you have this much your know, ounces of fluid and it was all perfectly laid out you have this much electrolytes 
by day two, that was out the window and it was just a case of, Connor, eat as much as you flipping well can. And that's, that's kind of what it was. And I've never experienced, I've never seen a, a human being consume so much food um, <laughs> for survival. And it wasn't because... It wasn't because he was just hungry, it was to survive. And I'll never get, there was one, one story I told the people was, uh, we, we got to stage, um, I think it was like stage five, it was the day after we went to Andorra. It was a really, really tough day and we were, we were on the bus before, um, before the race. And he, he was after having a big, big, big breakfast. He was after having a, you know, a, a, probably a trailer full of porridge as he does and, and fruit and, and stuff. And, you know, most guys then will have maybe a gel or a bar and a coffee on the bus before the stage. And like I said, he had just done a very big stage the day before and we're on the bus and uh, he says, Stevie, I'm, I'm really hungry. That's okay, no problem. We'll get you some food, you know. So we've got it on the bus. We've got a big fridge and the, the swanyers usually prepare your baguettes and sandwiches for the staff throughout the day for their, for their lunch. So Connor proceeds uh, one hour before the stage starts, open the fridge, and he ate, and this is no word of a lie, he ate two large tuna baguettes. He had two cans of lemon Fanta, and he had another big plate of, of dry pasta. So he basically consumed lunch for all the staff an hour before the stage. And uh, <laughs> it was just because he was hungry, and, and it, it just was, was remarkable what, what this guy could do. And, and what was, the most remarkable thing was, was he got to the end. So many people, they'll pull out and, and he got to the end. And not only did he get to the end, he got stronger as it went on. And it was just, from my point of view, it was one of the most inspiring things I have ever seen from somebody who put themselves through so much hardship. Like there was days, and he won't mind saying that there was days and nights where he, he came to my room and he was crying once or twice because he just emotionally couldn't take it. Because it was, he was just hurting himself every day. And for, to see him get to Madrid and get to the finish line and, and, and finish it was just, uh, you know, after seeing that, you're like, well, I can do anything. There's no reason any barrier that I come across ever, it's nowhere as big as a barrier that, that, he, that he surpassed. So it was quite a quite a remarkable feat, I must say, from, from him. Incredible. And there was a stage win, of course, for the team Aqua Blue Sport at the Vuelta that year as well, which, which was amazing. Um, moving from cycling for a moment, you also had um, four or five years as a strength and conditioning coach with the Waterford Senior Hurling Team. So clearly your skills can be applied across a whole variety of sports, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, like, like I would have, when I, was in, when I was in college myself, I would have been always in, you know, a big lover of sport, you know, be it GA, be it you know, football. And I suppose as I, as I progressed in my studies, I began to see how training had a direct impact on performance and how nutrition is. And I, I got really interested in, in individual sports like triathlon and rowing and stuff, and I would have been involved in those at, 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 at some way. But always my roots would have been in GA. Like I said, I played senior hurling with Cash Lines for a number of years. My dad would have been the chairman there many, many years as well. And I had left Cash Lines to go to England in 2008. And once I left Cash Lines, we had just been beaten by Newton Chandram in the county's quarterfinal, I believe, in Kildare. I still remember it because I was marking Ben O'Connor, or Jerry O'Connor was marking. And he absolutely gave me a hiding. And I remember going to England the following whatever the following month and and think to myself is that the last time i'll ever, I'll ever be involved in hurling because i went to the uk and, and got involved in cycling and triathlon and it wasn't then until i came back to ireland i was living in dublin for a while 
And then I got a job as a lecturer in WIT uh, in, in sports science. And when I moved down to Waterford, I had been out of GA for so long. But it was just by pure coincidence that, I, that a, a friend of mine gave my name to Derek McGrath, who called me and he said, look, can, you meet, can I meet you one night you know, in, in, in a local hotel? I want to have a little chat with you. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. I don't, didn't, to be honest with you, I was so far out of, out of GA, I didn't even know who Derek McGrath was. Um, I kind of knew, I knew what he was, but I had no real idea. And I didn't really have any idea of how, how Waterford had went in, in that championship in 2014, 15. So I met, I met Derek and uh, we had a really great chat. And, and he just asked me, would I like to get involved as a, as a sports scientist? Because he felt that the lads were missing some, some, different, some different things. And yeah, I got involved with Waterford in, in the winter of 2015. And uh, yeah, I was involved with those guys then for, for five seasons, uh, kind of did a lot with, with nutrition mostly, and then some strength conditioning, some fitness work, um, some coaching. And yeah, you know, it was, it was a nice five years, learned a lot, some plenty of ups, plenty of downs, but uh, yeah, it's a, it, was a, it was a nice environment to be involved in as well, for, for sure. And you're working with a professional outfit now, like obviously Gaelic Games is an amateur outfit, but I guess there's little between the fitness levels, the, the mentality is there? It's a common question I get asked is, is that, and it's, it's a nice question. It's, it's a nice question for me to, to kind of deliberate in my mind is the difference between professional sport and, and so-called amateur sport as well. And again, you know, for my first year involved with the senior hurling team in 2015 to all the way through to 2019, I see less and less difference between those guys and professional athletes simply because is that the want to improve is at the forefront of their minds. It doesn't matter if it's professional or if it's amateur, if performance and competing at the highest level is the primary focus. Well, all, all the professional cyclists are a professional athletes. They just have less noise. They have less things to worry about. They can focus on one thing. And that's kind of where you, you, you have to get, you know, and I know it's a debate that's been on for a long, long time about, about the amateurism of G and actually is it really amateur. But the, from what I've seen with the people I've worked with the last few years is the drive to want to be better, to improve themselves. And I mean, I would have seen that myself when I was in Castellines back in 2005. You know, I'd have been around the course years for a bit and watched them train. You hear like Don Logue and, and Jim O'Sullivan and these guys and, and, and what they did in that 2005 season to win the All-Ireland. That was when I got a first sense of, you know, being the best, you got to make sure you, you look at every aspect of performance. And that's, I think, Cork probably one of the trendsetters in that in the, in the mid kind of noughties. And I think now every team, from, from what I can see, is, is just really functioning on a very high, high level. Not professional, but on a very high level. And the, the differences between professional athletes I work with and, and amateurs is, is a lot less than, uh, than people actually think, you know. So going back like two or three years ago, there was a stage when you were working as a, a cycling coach, a strength and conditioning coach with a, an elite Gaelic Games uh, team, and you were lecturing as well. How did you balance all that? That's a good question. I, I also had a fiancé at the time as well, so she's now my wife, so I, I think I didn't, do, I didn't do too badly there. So, But <laughs> it was... I, I mean, it's it's one of those things, and, and you know, if there's any young coaches or young people listening who want to get involved in sport, and it's something that I'm very passionate about now because I'm 35 years old now, and I remember being 25, and I, I remember wanting to be involved in sport, and 
at the end of the day, you just got to say yes to stuff. Because I went through a number of years in my mid to late 20s where I didn't have access to work. I didn't have access to these teams and, and these jobs. It just wasn't there. And all of a sudden, things started to pop up. I got my dream job as a lecturer. And then I got my dream job working with the Water Senior Hurling Team. Well, my dream job was working with the Corkers, but I got my second dream job working with the Water Senior Hurling Team. And then the job came up in cycling, and I just said, yes, yes, yes. And at the time, it was probably, it was too much. I was doing too much. But what I did do is I learned an incredible amount about myself, how to time manage. And the most important thing for me is that I had very diverse jobs, but what I did learn was how to communicate to different people. And when it comes to being an effective person in sport and having longevity in sport is being an effective communicator of information. And so being a lecturer, I was lecturing, you know, first years, second years, fourth years, postgrad students. Then you're, then you're trying to give information to GA players. You've got, you know, professional footballers or, or cyclists and the different mentalities. And I truly believe that it was my, it was just being exposed to all those different environments got me to a point where I'm, I was 31, 32 and I actually could, now I have one job. My, my sole job is, is work with Age to World Mondial, whereas, like, like you said there, three or four years ago, I had five or, six, five or six different jobs. And without those jobs, I would not be where I am now. And that's 100% true because I, I learned so much in that, uh, you know, kind of three or four year period, juggling, juggling all those things. Very, very difficult, but I just loved it. And I, 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 had, a, I had a passion for... Again, it sounds cliche, but I, 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 this wasn't always the case. I had a passion for helping people. When I was a, when I was a hurler, I didn't want to help anybody. I just was cared about myself. I wanted me to be better. And that was right to my 20s. You know, when I was a cyclist, I didn't care about anybody else. I just was focused on me, 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 and how can I get better? And that was it. And then when I got to my early 30s, I don't know how or why or, or where it happened. It changed to, I don't really care about myself anymore. I just want to see other people improve. And, um, and that's, that's kind, of, kind of what's led to me, to me where I am now is I'm, I'm very lucky in the job I have. It's a very nice job. It's a secure job. I get to travel the world. Uh, it's uh, well paid for it. And, uh, but it, it's at the, the crux of it is I get to try and help people to achieve um, what they either what they think they can't do or what they want to do. And that's, that's very, very, uh, very re- rewarding. Well, you've packed a lot into the first 35 years of your life. I mean, we haven't even mentioned the fact that like, as you were an elite level rider yourself, you, you raced in the, in the, in the Ross, uh, in the, in the Irish Jersey, you pulled on the Cork Jersey at underage level, and now you're, uh, coaching at an elite level as well. Like, so it's been a fascinating, uh, you have a fascinating story, clearly Stephen. Um, but now we're in unprecedented times with this lockdown due to COVID-19. How have you had to, deal with it with the with regards to the AG2R riders like are they very much on the home trainers now every day yeah it's it's true like you know like, like you said it's it's um I think I've been prepared well as when you work within elite sport you're always prepared for curveballs and you're always re- prepared for these very complex or chaotic situations that that happen you know anytime you know you're involved with, it, with a hurling match or a hurling team you always have these very intense periods and it's no different now this kind of got thrown on us and you know I I was living in Nice for the last few months I moved to France and um it was funny I, I was I was I was on the promenade one day uh doing a bit of work with one of the guys and I just got this sense of this whole COVID-19 started to escalate a little bit in in Italy and, and France and I ended up 
coming back home. And then it was just kicked off, kicked off then where the whole place went, went into lockdown. So in the last kind of you know, four or five weeks, my job has been quite multi, multifunctional. Is that we have guys who live in different countries. We've got French, Belgium, you know, and Swiss, and they've got different constrictions in different countries. So all the French guys, you cannot train outside. So in Ireland, we can, we can go for a run within a 2K vicinity of our house. But in France, you actually cannot leave your home. So we've got a lot of guys who live in apartments or live in live in small you know small you know city city houses. So we've had to try and devise a plan that can fit into their into their life that they can not so much gain fitness, but but we're trying to delay the decay in their fitness or trying to delay their their detraining, but also at the same time trying to look at different aspects we can improve on. And I began to look at it as a, as a kind of a positive in that as a professional athlete, you never, ever get this extended period of time where you have, don't have to worry about travel, races, recovery, and you actually can focus on very individualized, specific things. Now, again, I, I know the whole scenario, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible thing that's happening in France, but you know, when, you, when, you put your, when you put your work hat on, you got to look at it as, as, okay, well, actually, we can achieve a lot of good stuff here. So I kind of explained that to our guys. They began to look at it a bit differently. It's like, actually, yeah, it's true. Like, because if, if this wasn't happening, they'd be traveling all over Europe. They'd be racing. And even in the off-season, they maybe have a month where they can go on holidays, but then it's straight back into training camp. So, so we began to look at it. We, we, we looked at each person individually, and we kind of made an individual improvement plan for everybody. So we got some guys doing home training stuff. We got some guys who are working more on their lower body strength, upper body strength. Um, and it's quite, it's quite individualized. And when you bring that individualized aspect to it, you get much bigger buy-in. And when you got bigger buy-in, you got more adherence. When you got more adherence, it becomes more effective. So that's kind of the, the strategy that I try to use when I'm you know, working with the guys now at the moment. And it's interesting as well. I was reading an interview you did on the team's website in recent weeks and you spoke about upper body work with the riders because when we think of cycling, we think of the power in the legs, power that riders are, are generating on the pedals. But upper body strength is quite important in cycling as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, and it's, a, it's something that I tried to, to get into the team was that is that there's, there's this misconception that you know, upper body strength is, is only for rugby players are only for bodybuilders and it's of no really impact as a to cyclist and 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 it's like kind of and, and a lot of this would come from working with the hurlers and, and work with the GA team is that I, I look at how you look at sports specific strength so when I was doing SNC with the, the hurlers we would have looked a lot of, at, at game tape and looked at the demand of the sport and how we can replicate those demands in the gym. So if it's breaking a tackle, if it's if it's kind of breaking a rock or getting out of a rock, there's different nuances within that that you can actually apply in the gym, rather than just in your squat, your deadlift, and your bench. The exact same thing applies to, to cycling, in that there's this historical idea with cyclists that if you lift weights, you get muscles, and you look like Alan Schwarzenegger, and if you look like Alan Schwarzenegger, you can't go up a hill very fast. But I began to show them that by being stronger in the upper body, it does three things is one that we can delay or we can resist fatigue in our lower back. And then what, what we also can do is that we can resist forces. So resistant rotation and resistant flexion and extension. And as bike riders, and you know, if anybody's listening has been on their bike and you're going down the hill, you're going left, you're going right, you're going really, really fast. 
So it's actually a lot of forces are actually hitting your, hitting your upper body and your, your arms are, are getting quite tired, your back is quite tired. So if you can make those, your shoulders, your core, your back much stronger, well, then it means you can resist more force, which means that you fatigue later, which means in essence, you can transfer more power from your upper body to, the, to, the, to your legs and in essence to the, to the bike. So it was, it was packaging the message in that way got me, ah, a guy, you know, you could see light bulbs going off. Okay, well, it's, it's not just uh, for bodybuilders, but I began to show them different exercises that we, we don't just do bench press and pull-ups. We start, began to do different exercises that they could see had a direct impact on the performance end. And that's been just kind of a, a, a quite a important part in, in my integration within the team because when a, a non-French speaker comes into a French team, you're kind of looked at as like, what's this guy going to bring? And, and it, it was a, a case of a few weeks, a few months where you began to show your value and show your worth. And I suppose that value and worth has kind of been magnified in the last few few months which has been quite nice and uh yeah we've i've just got some really nice buy-in from from some of the guys and uh it's been it's been good but it's, it's an interesting topic for sure about uh, about in cycling Stephen, your role requires you to help riders maximize their potential gain an edge um sadly over the years we've seen people you know using performance enhancing substances i'm sure people listening into this podcast will be thinking cycling or ask them about doping first of all i know the team promotes um clean sport ag2r le mondial and the, the attitude seems to be shifting i think in cycling as well someone made the point over the last couple of years that riders are finishing races tired now as well that's a hint that they aren't doping would you go along with that yeah look i mean it's it's um you know, it's a question you always expect when you work within cycling and it's something that I would have experienced as well in, in the last few years. If you know, it's 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 the sports, it's the sports or making, you know, it's it's the historical nature of the sport. It it is what it is. So it's something that there's no point dismissing it, there's no point um uh, kind of trying to avoid it. it. But the fact of the matter is it was a it was a very prominent part of the sport um for a number of years. I've been involved in professional cycling now for almost uh, coming on to four into five years. I'm involved in the sport because from what I see, there is a hunger for information. There's a hunger for knowledge. There's a hunger to improve. And you're right in saying that you know, the, the repercussions of you know, cheating, the repercussions of doping are so drastic and so high, rightly so, that riders need to um, look at alternative ways to improve, improve the performance, and you can see that now is that there's a bigger there's a bigger emphasis on nutrition, there's a bigger emphasis on different training techniques, there's a bigger emphasis on equipment aerodynamics. So all these different things are much more set front and center. And I think some people say, okay, these is used to try and shadow what actually is going on, but it's 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 not the case at all. And uh, like you say, some of the power numbers that we're seeing from riders, some of the speeds and some of the races aren't as fast. Um, you know, some of the climbs and so on, and so on aren't as fast. And you, you know, it's it's pretty clear that the, you know, I'm sure still some people are trying to bend the rules and break the rules, which is in any, any sport. But for now, for sure, the, the vast majority of the the peloton is is very much working from a an even playing field and a very very it's a it's a much cleaner sport. Than, uh, than it was and uh, you know you look at some of the data and some of the numbers of different sports and and positive positive tests and, and cycling is dropping down that uh, that list kind of uh, rapidly each each year which is uh, which is nice to see from from a sports point of view it sure is because it's a fantastic sport i really i really love cycling as well and um 
you know, obviously it, its reputation was tarnished over the last number of decades, but, you know, fingers crossed there is a, a bright future ahead for, for that sport and other sports as well. Um, have you been keeping fit at the moment? I know you're back in Cork as well, um, waiting to return to France once the lockdown measures are lifted, but what have you been up to? It's funny, it's like I've probably never been as fit as I am now in my, in my life because uh, I'm not traveling as much. And uh, it's funny because um, you know, the last few years when you're involved in professional sports, again, I was always an athlete, so I was always very active. But the last two or three years, I became probably overly immersed in my work and, and wanting to, to maybe fall by the way. So this is your own <clears throat> activity or your own, your own health. And um, yeah. You know, I said I, I was, you know, when you're working in cycling, some of the days are, you, you don't know what day of the week it is, and you're working from 6 a.m. to sometimes midnight, you know, the Tour de France, when you're preparing for the next day, you can work until 1 or 2 a.m. and be up at 6 a.m. It's a little bit crazy, but um, it's all very sh- short term. But but now, I actually have been training for the Nice Half Marathon, where I actually live, and uh, I was doing a lot of running for that, and got pretty fit, and obviously that was that was cancelled. So since I've been home, caught now the last four weeks, I've been on my smart trainer, on, on Zwift and, and maybe some people are, are aware what Zwift is it's like an online platform for cyclists that they can hook up their their turbo trainer at home in their shed and and cycle virtually with other with other uh, other cyclists and it's something that we've been utilizing a lot with our team and we do a lot of online um, group meetups and we do a lot of um, AG Tour um, group sessions on it so I'll as the coach you you need to be seen to be able to you practice what you pe- preach. So I'm doing a lot of my my own sessions. I give guys. I do it myself, but at a, a, a less intensity, of course. But I'll uh, I'm probably cycling as much now as I was when I was a professional. So I'll 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 do as I, as I as I as long as I can, you know. And the AG to our team. Um... I know from watching the races over the years, my dad personally, he loves their, their jerseys, the, the blue and white top and the brown shorts. They, they are class, really, the, the AG2R colours. Um, I was looking at the bikes for this, this year as well, Stephen, the Eddie Merckx bikes, they are incredible. Yeah, it was, it's, um, what was a, a big thing for me was actually at the Tour de France last year, which started in, in Brussels. We were at the, at the bu- a start bus and Eddie Merckx appeared, as in the Eddie Merckx. And, and for me, again, to see... Eddie Marks there, you know, he's probably the, the greatest cyclist of all time, was was quite a surreal moment. And, you know, he just got chatting to me a bit about uh, the bikes because I'm, a lot of my job would be involved in the, the technology and the equipment. But we, we had a very strong relationship with the Belgium Cycling Factory. So we would have been over there quite a bit the last uh, few months, pretty in the off-season, where Eddie Marks' bikes are, are prepared and built um, in, uh, in Belgium. They have a wind tunnel there and... Uh, like I said, now you, you just see the way bikes have developed over the last few years, and you know, the Eddie Merckx bikes we have between the the road bike and the time trial bike, it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty uh, it's a pretty nice bike, and it's been you know it's nice to see Oliver Nason come second in Milan San Remo. He's a you know he's probably one of the best Belgian cyclists of all time. For him to be able to ride on an Eddie Merckx uh, Eddie Merckx bike and get second in uh, San Remo was uh, was a big deal, and. He was obviously pushing this year for Paris Roubaix and Tour of Flanders, but um, yeah, no, like I said, it's uh, it's the one cool thing about my job. You get you get to see some pretty cool tech, uh, which is uh, which is a nice part of the job for sure. But a bike envy from a lot of people I have from some of my friends. Last year there were fourteen wins for the team. They had a couple of wins in twenty twenty before the cessation of sport. Obviously, we've mentioned Bardet, we've mentioned Nassen, Laurie Warbassa on the um, on the team as well, who he would have been working with at Aqua Blue. But there's a young rider there called Benoit Cosnefroy who's been winning races. He looks uh, a really exciting prospect. 
Yeah, like he's uh, Ben was. He's a real deal. He's one of these real. Uh, he's he's a young guy. He's come through the AG Tour development uh, program. So he's with a so AG Tour also have an under nineteen and under twenty three team as well called uh, Van Riesel and CCF. So Benoit is from. Uh, he lives in Axlaban, which is just north of uh, where our service course is. But he's the he's the real deal. He's probably one of the punchiest riders I've ever seen. And what I mean by that is that he just has this capacity to accelerate and to produce a lot of power very, very rapidly. He'd be kind of akin to your your nippy corner forward in GA, for want of a better better analogy. He's just really fast, really punchy. And he was only 22, 23. So as, you know, in the last, I suppose, 12 months, we've done a lot, of, a lot of work with him where he's just began to develop his aerobic engine, his aerobic capacity. And he kind of, his breakthrough race last year was in... Um, was it was a Liège Bastogne Liège where he was top fifteen I think where Roman was just in front of him, and that was a big big surprise for us because that's not really a, a parkour that suits him. But he just showed his ability to suffer and his ability to to put out the power when he when he could. And it was quite nice for me this year in February. I was actually director sportif in uh, one of the first races at Toile de Bessage, and he actually was the the winner of that race. And it came down to the last time trial, so it's a five five day stage race. And I was doing director sportive for him in the time trial in the last day. And he was in the yellow jersey and uh, we had two guys behind us, um, Betty All and uh, a guy called Alexi Brunel and fast, fast time trialers. So we put a plan together for, for Benoit to, to do a good time trial. And uh, yeah, we talked with Jude and he ended up getting, uh, he ended up coming sixth in that stage, which he, just, he held on to his yellow jersey. But it was quite a, a cool moment for me. It was my first, it actually was my first win. In, in a team car with H2R, so it was, it was quite a cool moment for me. But yeah, he's a he's a guy to keep an eye on in the, for the next few years, for sure. He's a special talent. Really exciting prospects. So, and speaking of emerging talents, obviously in Cork, really strong cycling culture here with clubs like Cantork and Fermoy and Yall. Two young Cork lads coming through the ranks at the moment. Um, they're both competing professionally. Eddie Dunbar and Darrell Mahoney. I'm sure you'll come across them at some stage if you haven't already. I know the two guys very well. I mean, Eddie would have been with us in the last year of Aqua Blue, so I'd uh, I'd know Eddie quite well. And you know, being in Castle Lines, he only's from uh, just down the road between uh, near 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 Bantir. He's um, he's uh, incredibly talented kid. And what Eddie what Eddie has Eddie has this ability again to to not be overshadowed by anybody. He's got supreme confidence without arrogance and that he does not care who he's racing. He does not care who's around him. He just focuses on himself. And I can't remember the race, but it was last year. He was in, I think it was maybe Tour de Provence. He was in a front group with um, Alejandro Valverde. Mm. And Valverde was attacking. And then Eddie was in the same group as him. And then Eddie attacked. And Valverde's like, who the hell is this kid attacking me? Like, you're not supposed to be attacking me. I'm, I'm Valverde. And Eddie rode off. And it was just... It was a real stamp of his authority that he did not care who was around him. So, I mean, Eddie now, he's obviously with, uh, with Ineos. He's in a, I, I know a lot of the guys there, a lot of coaches there. He's in a very cultivative environment where he's surrounded by the best riders. He's surrounded by a very, very strong development program. And uh, he's only going to improve. He's going to improve so, some more. I know he's, from the words, the last, uh, the last 12 months, he's, uh, he's probably one of their, their hottest prospects. You've got some guys like Ian Bernal and, and Pavel Sivikov, but I do know for a fact that he's one that's on the, the top of the tongue when it comes to the, the upper management in India. So he's a super, super good guy. And, I mean, for Dara as well, I mean, Dara, I know he's been in France a bit as well, and he's, um, 
he's kind of been there thereabouts for the last few years. He's trying to get that that big breakthrough now. And the one thing I would say that there is is just you you get what you deserve. And I mean that that thing comes. It mightn't always come immediately, but at some point at the work you put in, which he's been doing, that you'll eventually get your reward. And I, I try to explain even to me that I didn't get my reward, let's say, a big job till I was almost in my late twenties, early thirties, and the same thing with Dara, I know he's 23, 24 now, but he's uh, the guy's talented and, and the talent will always will always produce something. So, um, yeah, he's another guy to keep an eye on how he goes in the next uh, the next few months, a few years. Stephen, I always like to ask the guests what makes them tick, what motivates them, uh, be it something in their work or in their daily life. What is it for you? Well, I mean, for me, I suppose it's, it's kind of ch- it changes kind of quite quite regularly. But the last the last few months, I, I don't know. I don't know how, but my mentality has changed into into wanting to give as much as I can. So when I was working as a lecturer and when I was working in different in different jobs, I always felt I was working at maybe fifty percent of my capacity. I felt I could give more. I felt I could offer more, and I I didn't want to waste everything I've learned in in the thirty five odd years. I don't want to waste all the hardship I went through in my twenties and teens, and and what what ticks what makes me tick now is seeing somebody anybody either realize their potential or just improve and, and that might be a professional it might be you know somebody who's, who's going to do their their first run and I've, I've began to help some kind of amateur athletes in the, in the last few the last few weeks and and worked with some club hurling teams the last few weeks as well and it just gives me a buzz to see these young guys, 17-year-olds who want to play for core curlers and they're just mad to learn. And that's what, that honestly is what probably makes me, me tick the most at the moment is, is just trying to, I've learned all this stuff the last few years. I don't need it. So I want to give it out as much as I can to people, which sounds uh, sounds mad, but that's, uh, that's kind of it, you know. I'm sure you don't have an awful lot of time to be reading books and watching Netflix and stuff like that, but are there any series or books you've been enjoying in recent weeks, you know, during the lockdown? Yeah, and like, and like you said, I, I wouldn't be the biggest reader of books simply because a lot of my days are spent reading emails. So I don't want to read a book to to kind of wind down. But in the last in the last few few months, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of audio books. But I actually heard an interview by Ron Nogara again, who's another guy. He's a big inspiration for me, having working in France, and it's quite a. I've kind of been meaning to try and touch base with him soon, but. He's motivated me a lot, but he actually recommended a book. I heard him speaking somewhere called Pebbles of Perception. And I actually ordered a book on, on Amazon a few weeks ago, and it came, uh, came two weeks ago. And I'm getting through it, and it's, it is an incredibly um, kind of motivating book because what it does, it kind of goes into how curiosity and how, you know, how we think about different things helps to expand horizon. And I'm I'm naturally a very curious curious person, and it's a very good quote in the first uh, in the first few pages, which is that old saying that whoever made up the saying "curiosity killed the cat, cat" should be you know should be put down because curiosity is one of the most important things we as humans can have because that's what that's what wants us to go and answer questions. So I'd be a very curious person, and that book I've so I'm, I'm a few chapters in, and uh, again it was recommended by a, a good Cork guy, Ron Nagara. So I re- would recommend if people are, are interested in it's not it's not so much a self help book because I know there's a lot of those self help books out there which can be a bit wishy washy, but this is seems to be the one I've come across which has the most um, relevance, let's say, to to work in. It's super interesting. And when it comes to TV and stuff, again, not a big TV fan. I've actually started to watch The Last Dance on Netflix. 
which was the Michael Jordan documentary. The first two episodes have been up. Yeah. Super interesting. Really, really interesting. Um, just to see just to see how he was you know, as, a, as a young kid. Like, we don't know Michael Jordan, but I, you know, even for me, who'd be the big fan of sport, didn't really know the, in, the ins and outs of his earlier years, and it's incredibly interesting. So I recommend that for people, The Last Dance, which is, a, is, a, is quite, quite good also. I can't wait to check out that Netflix documentary, and I'll be adding that book to my reading list as well. And I've actually been watching the, the Mavi Star uh, documentary on, on Netflix at the moment. That's really interesting. It is in Spanish, but it's subtitled. And uh, they're, they're one of your enemies, of course, one of the rival teams. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I got a lot of texts from friends of, of saying, like, is cycling really, really like that? And I was like, yes, that's a very good representation of what it's like to be in a race. You know, you've got the directors in the cars and they're shouting and there's a whole lot of stuff going on. It's a little bit crazy. But yeah, like they'd be one of our, our let's say, our nemesis. And um, it's a nice documentary. Like I said, it gives a bit of an insight for people into what it's like on a race and what it's like being in a, in a team car and uh, just the stress, the stress of, of decision making and stuff. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nice documentary for people to see. And I suppose it, it presents professional cycling in a, in a different way than we, than we usually see. So it's, a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting watch for sure. Well, listen, Stephen, that's about it. Thanks a million for the chat. When do you head back to France? Um... Well, when I'm when I'm allowed, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, we've been given tentative details that the Tour de France is due to depart Nice on the 20, uh, 29th of August. So France comes out of lockdown on the eleventh of May, and then mass gatherings are allowed after the end of, or after the middle of July. So we've got tentative. Um, you know, plans in place to have a small training camp in start of August and then you know, try and prepare for the Tour de France that way so at the moment I, I plan to get back out to Nice probably if my wife lets me but probably uh, towards the end of May into, into June will be kind of where, where I'm looking at but like I said we'll see where it is with travel and, and with uh, restrictions and stuff but yeah, like I said hopefully hopefully the Tour de France does roll down the, the start ramp in Nice in, in August and we'll have a bit of a spectacle to watch in, in August, September which is kind of what we're all, we all kind of need at this stage isn't it? It certainly is. Listen, Stephen, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for a fascinating chat and uh, continued success going forward. We'll speak to you soon. Not at all. Thank you very much. Appreciate having me.